0: Welcome to the first episode of season four of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season four of the podcast features lectures written and delivered by Cedar Saigo during his time as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Saigo's lectures plumb the particulars of influence, history, tone, and form to beget a singular autobiography of voice. Across these talks, Saigo explores his childhood on the Suquamish Reservation, his coming to poetry, and the dream of composition. He pays homage to a glittering constellation of postmodernist and revolutionary teachers, artists, and peers, and builds enduring and pointed questions of agency, interdependence, lineage, and transformation. We'll begin with Saigo's lecture, Reality is No Obstacle, A Poetics of Participation. This talk was originally given May 16th, 2019, at the Poetry Foundation. Please enjoy this episode.
1: Take a good look at history, the American myth. Check sellout of revolution by the founding fathers. Constitution written by a bunch of gangsters to exploit a continent, is what Charles Olson told me. Check Shays' Rebellion, Aaron Burr, Nathan Hale, who wrote the history books where you went to school. Check Civil War, Maybe Industrial North needed cheap labor. South had it. How many sincere movement people writers and radicals played into their hands? Check Haymarket trial. It broke the back of strong wobbly movement. How many jailed, fined, killed to stop that one? What's happening to us has happened a few times before. Let's change the script. What did it take to stop the freedom writers? What have we actually changed? Month I was born, they were killing onion pickers in Ohio. Month that I write this, nearly 40 years later, they're killing UFWs in the state I'm trying somehow to live in. Let's rewrite the history books. History repeats itself only if we let it.
2: Uh, that was revolutionary letter number 62. Um, and this lecture starts with a quote by Will Alexander. Um, because the deepest revolution is not social. I have wondered if this piece of writing could more accurately be described as a speech rather than a lecture. The recently insulting and polarized political climate has struck a chord inside of me. Is this a need to articulate my resistance, or just a willingness to begin to ask new questions? When does the word itself become action, This is a question I encountered in a lecture by the poet Lorenzo Thomas, titled How to See Through History, Myth Perception. How to See Through Poetry, Myth Perception, and History. It's a question he never really answers, and one that I think must be haunting all of our minds. Every day, our phones our televisions call up new images and actions of dehumanization, barring whole populations of countries from entering the United States. Images of makeshift concentration camps posing as immigrant detention centers. This is happening under a bridge in El Paso. Yesterday's threat of defunding the Special Olympics, the possibility of being able to deny health care services on the grounds of some newfangled moral objection from the religious right, These are extra classy, shockingly evil deeds, and I think somehow strategic choices. Let's do the most heartless thing. The headlines no longer pile up. They disappear, and we are feigning shock at this point. This mindset has caused me to confront the parts of resistance that my poetry has left undone. My work has always placed its highest premium on delaying the meeting of edges in collage until they fall to form the final image. Or is it better to say, the unlocking of collage through the inflection of voice? This is most likely due to the way I take in language before attempting to lift it up and set it back out into reality. A variant of this energy is released through the public reading of the work, lending an acoustic sensation of going elsewhere or that, in fact, the poems are reading themselves. This is a piece from Amiri Baraka's essay, How You Sound. I make a poetry with what I feel is useful and can be saved out of all the garbage of our lives. What I see, am touched by, can hear, wives, gardens, jobs, cement yards where cats pee, all my interminable artifacts, All are a poetry, and nothing moves with any grace pried apart from these things. There cannot be closet poetry unless the closet be wide as God's eye. And all that means that I must be completely free to do just what I want in the poem. All is permitted. For the purposes of this lecture, I want to focus on a new kind of correspondence, another dance that my work is now beginning to uncover whose ultimate and desired effect is to build coalitions among people and to keep that spark active and available within poetry. Poetry is never simply a set of words living alone upon the page. It exists as a perennial light in the mind, a tool of recognition that we must press into the hands of others. Teaching poetry often, as I do now, most often in short stints and out-of-the-way places, I have taken to reading American revolutionary poets like Audre Lorde, John Trudell, Diane de Prima, Amiri Baraka, Margaret Randall, Jane Cortez, Tongo Ison Martin. I hesitate to immediately stamp their work as political anymore, especially when introducing their poems to students. Such naming at this point feels like imposing an immediate paralysis or unnecessary sealing, when in fact these poets hand us forms that we carry as amulets, seemingly simple exercises that we may call upon to redefine what revolution means, taking it on in luminous particulars, startling us with bound-up images unleashed. That is really the pleasure of the poet anyway, to redefine our engagement with the way language comes to guide our lives. Revolutionary letter 100, reality is no obstacle. Refuse to obey, refuse to die, refuse to sleep, refuse to turn away. Refuse to close your eyes, refuse to shut your ears, refuse silence when you can still sing. Refuse discourse in lieu of embracement, come to no end that is not a beginning. I was listening to a recording of a reading Diane de Prima gave at Berkeley in 2008, and she spoke briefly about her initial aims for her series, Revolutionary Letters. She was still living in New York City at that time, but on the brink of moving out to San Francisco. What happened was somebody in New York hired a flatbed truck, Sam Abrams, a poet, and a generator that would run an amplifier. And we went out, some folk singers who were considered very radical, guerrilla theater people who did street theater, and poets. And we went all over New York. This was those years of assassinations, around 67, 68 or so. Not the first wave, but the second wave of assassinations. And we would just perform places. And I realized that the poems I had were too intellectual for that kind of performing. So I started to write things that were just something you could hear on one hearing on the street, something more like guerrilla theater, even though it was poetry. And that became The Revolutionary Letters. So there were a lot of those. They would go out to something called the Liberation News Service which would send them to 200 revolutionary newspapers. People would print what they wanted and that went on every week or so and eventually I put out a book of them in 1971 with City Lights. I love her concept of writing work that we can make use of after one hearing. It's an interesting intention to place over the process, plus the poet is al- almost expecting that her words will be blindly broken off at some point, so the listener may only get a shard of the poem, and then writing with that in mind to begin with. Deprima Prima also describes what sounds like a very deliberate cross-pollinization of the arts. She mentions banding together with folk singers and guerrilla theater groups, and it sounds very much like a shifting armory of artists. And a way to question the difference between actual protest and between protest and actual battle. When De Prima references the second wave of assassinations, she is not only speaking of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, but also the deaths of 17-year-old Bobby Hutton, the first recruit of the Black Panther Party, as well as Fred Hampton chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, who was gunned down in his own home in December of 1969 during a raid ordered by the Chicago Police Department, who had been working in conjunction with the FBI for their COINTELPRO operation to, quote, investigate radical national political groups for intelligence that would lead to involvement of foreign enemies within these programs. So essentially, agents would infiltrate the organization as undercover Panthers, obtain information, begin to divide and conquer, and to assassinate. This is revolutionary letter number 36. Who is the we? Who is the they in this thing? Did we or they kill the Indians? Not me. My people brought here cheap labor to exploit a continent for them. Did we or they exploit it? Do you admit complicity? Say we have to get out of Iraq, we really should stop poisoning the water, etc.? Look closer, look again. Secede, declare your independence. Don't accept a share of the guilt they want to lay on us. Man is beautiful and innocent, and born to perfect bliss they envy. Heavy deeds make heavy hearts, and to them life is suffering. Stand clear. The poem is instructive for the way in which Diane begins to interrogate the reach of pronouns, her own complicity, which leads to throwing out questions about her own origins and eventually questions how we can even identify any longer with the criminal acts they think they are slipping by as mere legislation. I am also so enamored with the way the pronouns first feel haphazardly talky and strewn about the poem, though actually they are carefully lighted upon, leaned against, forming the literal crux of the music. Explanations are finally ground down to a last dusting of liberation philosophy, stand clear. The appeal of revolutionary letters is the feeling of being on the pulse of social upheaval and the reader is placed inside the mind of the poet as strategist and environmental activist, espousing lists of theories on how he might survive as well as ways of continuing to force change. When Diane de Prima left the East Coast to move West in 1968, it was primarily to work with a group of San Francisco activists known as the diggers. One of their founders, Peter Berg, had once teased DePrima Prima on an earlier reading trip to the Bay Area. Your writing helped bring all of this about. Now come and enjoy the fruits. The diggers would initially proclaim their presence by serving free food in the long and shaded park adjacent to Golden Gate, known as the Panhandle. This was in 1966. Berg has said they were actually more interested in getting the attention of the people in cars driving down the street, passing the food line. He hoped that they would wonder why these young people were standing around outside and eating and that eventually they would see no reason not to join them. Placing the word free in front of anything was another tactic of theirs. They operated a free store in the Lower Haight, an on-the-spot art experiment which ran for three years. A lot of its goods were donations from large supermarkets, crates of melons, things that would go to waste otherwise. And the diggers would also spread the donations to a network of communes that had sprung up around the city. The original mimeograph edition of Revolutionary Letters was published in 1968 by the diggers' own imprint, Communications Company. Subsequent 1968 editions were produced by the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church in New York City and the Artist Workshop Press in Ann Arbor. Another edition was produced in 1969 in London by Long Hair Books. I love that three separate rabid underground printings of the book began almost immediately, a palpable sign of oncoming insurrection. De Prima has described her outlook on publishing and distribution of the letters as being tied to her early anarchist beliefs. People could hear them and would do whatever they wanted with it. I'm an anarchist. My grandfather on my mother's side was an anarchist who wrote with Carlo Tresca for his newspaper, and I tended to have that way with my politics. I never joined anything, but I wrote a lot and put it out to be used however. What feels most important to say is that Revolutionary Letters remains an ongoing series. Despite having added new poems with each subsequent edition, six editions in all now, people tend to confine its concerns to the late 60s or early 1970s, almost to freeze it where it began, at those first nine flatbed truck poems. But in fact, the revolutionary letter is a form Di Prima would take with her on the road when she began to work with poets in the schools from 1971 to 1978. This outreach would take her all over the country, including teaching on the Hopi and Navajo reservations and teaching the children of immigrant workers in Salinas, California. I want to be sure and get a few of the later letters in here. Uh, this one is dated August 2nd, 1984 revolutionary letter number 72, a spell for the children of the poor. Here is a camera for obsidian of Thunder Mountain, Nevada tour guide who cares for her mother and her brothers and sisters, whose eyes turn always toward the highway and a lifetime supply of charcoal and pens and brushes for Melissa, black girl who lives next door to me in the Fillmore, where the grocer re- refuses to give her eggs if she's two cents short, and she's always two cents short. Spent the last five dollars on codeine. Her mother spent the last $5 on codeine because she hurts, and notebooks by the dozen for Erlinda Shakespeare, Shoshone, age 12, who was afraid to write more on her great long poem because the notebook we gave her was running out and notebooks cost 35 cents. There is enough paper, Erlinda, and paint and a violin for your brother and all the leotards anybody wants on Webster Street in Hunter's Point. Here's a drum set, another, take the whole damn music store. What are we holding on to when you guys are the only art that's news? This is a poem in the form of a giveaway, a kind of potlatch that becomes a series of portraits calling attention to poverty. What are we holding on to? A great question that rapidly gains speed and a shimmering quality to its speculation. The Prima just makes class distinction seem in the way of possible greatness. She manages to convey a great sense of boredom about such values. Near the ending of the poem, she restores us by saying the possibilities we place in the young go beyond class, and that really what we need is access, literal paper and supplies and space and time, that the instrument can offer a pathway into the arts. The greatest gift we can offer is a discipline, Part of the difference I am experiencing when reading revolutionary letters now, as opposed to being in my 20s, is this arc of compassion that informs the sequence. This is a poem about class that is in fact so personalized and dispersed into gifts and people and portraiture and history that it slips in to do its work almost unnoticed and the heart is reached. So are the best of de Prima's poems those that compel the reader to act? The recurrent listing throughout the book helps to invite the reader into enacting the aspirations of her words. I think of the activist Asada Shakur's incredible statement. I see myself struggling in any way I can. I feel this clearly throughout Diprima's work that to struggle or to be in the movement is an eternal and aspirational state wherein poetic forms themselves are offered as strategies for change. I think again of Amiri Baraka, of his great poem, I Liked Us Better, a form in which he attempts to refine and question our present day movements and strategies for liberation. And this is just a piece of this poem. I liked us better when we were quick to throw a fist in the air. I liked us better when we were shouting and marching and intent on changing everything. I liked us better when we didn't dig our enemies so much, when we were at least suspicious. I like this better when we traveled in big gangs, not no small gangs, but big ass gangs, threatening to people who still threaten us when we charge them for their slavery and lynching and clan membership. Now they took the robes off and put them in their Republican Party briefcases on their way to the House of Representatives. But who do they represent? Not us, but our murderers and slavers and the same people who dragged us in the iron bottom of them boats. I liked us better when we remember these things and we're not just stand there pleading with people who hate us to be civil, because they won't and you should know it by now. We understand the way the frame hangs together from the first line thrown out, that once a point of view is unlocked through a prompt, through a line, I liked us better, it becomes accessible and part of our new stockpile of voices, a weightless and hypnotic form. The list, the portrait, the chant, these are individual variations to our line that we must continue to uncover. Gaining and maintaining a stylistic virtuosity is part of revolutionary poetry, part of making it new for yourself. This is a quality of energy that the great poets can scare up over and over. Revolutionary letter 115 is an elegy written after the death of Amiri Baraka in 2015. He was an early collaborator, ally, and lover of Diane de Prima's, father of her second child, Dominique. I will read just the tail end of this revolutionary letter. What matters? Every place you read, every line you wrote, every dog-eared book or pamphlet on somebody's shelf, every skinny, hopeful kid you grinned that grin at while they said they thought they could write, they thought they could fight, they knew for sure they could change the world. Every human dream you heard or inspired after the book signing, after the reading, after one more unspeakable faculty dinner? What matters? The memory of the poem taking root in thousands of minds.
3: The cancer journals came to be written as an attempt to break one silence, one aspect of the kinds of silences that we partake of as women. But I was also thinking, as the announcements went on of, <clears throat> Sarah mentioned, uh, Botha's uh, visit here. The, um, actually, it was not the Prime Minister, it was his brother who was the Foreign Minister. I mean, it, well, it's about keeping it in the family, <laughs> but it's pretty much the same. This has been in the wind for weeks. And I wonder how many of you agree, think it's fine, think it's wonderful that even now the policy of this country, which at least on paper was not accepting or underwriting apartheid in South Africa, is now in the process of being turned around, right? Do you know about it? Do you, how do you feel about it? How have you made your feelings known? Even a postcard? Right? to Washington, that this is not acceptable, that South Africa is not to lie down with us, right? or at least when it happens that there are people, there are voices in this country who resent it, who do not want this to happen. I mean, once we start thinking of ourselves as active, people, once we realize that we have a power and that that power is relative, but that we have a responsibility, I have a responsibility to speak out about what I feel, about what I think, that each one of you do, then the climate, then the whole aura begins to change. It becomes not one of simply acceptance, right, what can we do about it, but a different stance, which is I have a voice and I have to use it. So it's just something that I'd like you to keep in mind. When you hear announcements, when you recognize things are happening, that you do not wish to happen, that it's not enough just to say, isn't that terrible? You have a responsibility to yourselves, to our lives.
2: Uh, That is from a 1982 Audre Lorde reading um, from In Between Poems, speaking out on apartheid and the U.S. diplomacy around that. Our um, Apartheid would go on officially until April 27, 1994, so it went on 12 more years following these remarks. I have come to realize that the dream is not simply to turn my students into revolutionary poets, but to turn them into compassionate teachers and publishers of the arts themselves. Not only teachers that land jobs at the university level, per se, but those with visions that are tied to other kinds of community, Purposely forming a free workshop, establishing a time and meeting place for those that need to hear poetry in a group, giving precedence to the emerging smaller networks just to see what happens, or letting poets pay what they can. There is a long tradition of poets teaching out of their apartments or their friends' apartments, having the same students for 10 years or more. Poetry has always been such an underground endeavor in my life, meaning that the tradition I stepped into was always excited to make its own stapled books. This impulse to have a press came straight out of Diane Deprima's work. She operated Poets Press from 1964 to 1970, publishing over 30 titles. My insane, unending appetite for used books and pamphlets brought me deeper into Diane's work. Once I read all of her poetry, I looked into the books she herself had published, books like Hunky's Journal, Timothy Leary's Psychedelic Prayers, and David Henderson's first collection, Felix of the Silent Forest. I was also inspired by the more punk aesthetic of The Floating Bear, an early mimeographed newsletter of new writing that De Prima would edit with Amiri Baraka. Back then, he was Leroy Jones, of course. I began to get caught up in the mythologies of these underground presses and their various incestuous offshoots. That is to say, they began to occupy my imagination. Poets' press books are now relatively rare. De Prima printed a lot of first books by poets as a way of offering not simply an object, but an actualized pathway to the poet. (laughs) For instance, De Prima published Audre Lorde's first book, a collection of poems titled The First Cities. The book was published in 1968, the same year de Prima began to write the revolutionary letters. She provides a short, illuminating, two-part introduction to Lorde's work. The first part is simply a catalog of what de Prima finds appealing about the poetry. Audrey Lorde's world is all colors. It, its songs move through large areas of light and darkness. They take us with them through the landscape, which is circular, like Chinese painting. Part two simply says, I have known Audrey Lorde since we were 15, when we read our poems to each other in our homeroom at Hunter High School, and only two months ago she delivered my child. A woman's world, peopled with men and children and the dead, exotic as scallops. The birth mentioned is that of Diane's fourth child, Tara Marlowe. She was delivered by Lord on December 23, 1968, at the Albert Hotel, which was a residential hotel on University Place in the West Village. Diane would actually hold poetry readings in an old trunk room there during her year long stay. <laughs> Di intro to the first cities is almost prophetic of what Audre Lorde would go on to do with her essays, poetry, journals, and activism throughout the 1970s and 80s. In her introduction to Lorde's landmark collection of essays, Sister Outsider, the editor of the Crossing Press, Nancy Barino, writes tellingly of working with Lorde on the manuscript, When we began editing Sister Outsider, long after the book had been conceptualized, a contract signed and new material written, Audre Lorde informed me as we were working one afternoon that she doesn't write theory. I am a poet, she said. So then for all of her transformative work in teaching, organizing, writing speeches, editing and publishing, all of this is regarded as belonging to the work of poetry. In fact, Audre Lorde was famous for how she introduced herself as a black, lesbian, mother, warrior, poet. The following is from an anthology titled Woman Poet, The East, uh, in 1981. This is lifted from a section titled Biographical Notes. I am a black woman warrior poet doing my work For poets and other live human beings, those designations used to widen and expand identity are precious, but those categories used to restrict and narrow identity are death. In the interest of expanding identities, poetic and otherwise, you can say Lord is woman, black, lesbian, urban, mother, cantankerous, warrior, revolutionary, uppity, feminist, and fat all precious and inseparable aspects of my living that infuse energy into my work. I write as I live, teach, love, garden, etc., with the absolute conviction that all my activities are only different faces of the same task, surviving and spreading the word, teaching as a survival skill the task facing all of us. By us, I mean those who are moving through the categories meant to divide us, toward an acceptance of the creative need for human difference and the value of change. I find the concision of language within her essay writing to be so disarming. The best description I have come across of first reading Audre Lorde's work belongs to the Caribbean feminist writer Jackie Alexander, who wrote, But in honoring Audre Lorde, we are also honoring ourselves our struggles and our victories for whether or not for whether or not we know of lord's work we have lived it when i first read her essay writing lord's perceptions around race sexuality and class seemed to put me within reach of emotions i have kept buried for 20 years emotions i thought were too big to sort through to separate out I love Audre Lorde's use of the phrase, moving through the categories meant to divide us, meaning that all of us must put in check that sense of obstruction when we first meet, that conditioning, whatever it is, we can't get over or see past. Poetry is again helpful at showing all sides of a person. It invites questions easily into its measure as permanent flagstones. If we choose to meet and to study together, we can't help but reveal something in common. The workshop becomes an arena so attuned to listening, especially as you get into the second, third, and fourth meetings. It's not just the writing element that sparks a trust between participants. It is also the reading of our work, sounding it out together. I try not to crush them with feedback. It can seem inorganic. I seem to prize the poet simply reading yesterday's assignment out loud in order for the mind to click forward. In her essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, Lord writes. For women, then, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams toward survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. The farthest horizons of our hopes and fears are cobbled by our poems, carved from the rock experiences of our daily lives. Lord has also helped me to see that terms like confessional are often class-ridden designations designed to divide us. Sometimes poets can literally not afford to shroud their language in objectivity. The source of the poem can be pain and arranged into an object we cannot turn away from like strains of a popular song stuck in your head, for better or worse. Audre Lorde has terms like difference and survival and silence that reoccur as strands throughout her essays. This constant redefinition builds literal coalitions across her books. These are terms that define her essays, as well as perhaps her best-known poem, one that I began to cling to after the first hearing. This is from the collection titled The Black Unicorn. Um, It's titled A Litany for Survival. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone, for those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dawns, looking inward and outward, at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths, so that their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. For those of us who were imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk, For by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found. The heavy-footed hoped to silence us. For all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. And when the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering, we were never meant to survive. We were never meant to survive. A million forms spring up around that statement and then get narrowed, depending on who the we is. Who is the we? For myself, it is the reality of the Sequamish people, our history, as well as the present day. The fact that our longhouse was torched by Catholic missionaries in 1870, our ceremonies and songs and dances outlawed, our children forcibly removed from their parents and relocated to boarding schools, flagrant attempts, laws to starve us out at every turn, It reminds me of the famous chief of the Suquamish and Duwamish tribes, Chief Seattle, and his speech during the treaty negotiations of 1854. These shores will swarm with the invisible dead of my tribe. In all the earth, there is no place dedicated to solitude. It is the same as Asada Shakur's statement, one I was leaning on earlier. I see myself struggling in whatever way I can. For those of us who continue to be imprisoned and colonized, solitude becomes an inaccessible state, and concurrently, so does our silence. Or as Lord would come to remind us so often in her collection, Sister Outsider, your silence will not protect you. She provides her readers with so many lines to carry in mind. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house is another classic. These are like Audre Lorde-isms. They tend to stick in your head after the first reading. I teach a litany for survival, not only to allow students to feel acknowledged, but also to encourage them to speak out. That is why I say I cling to it. The most crucial aspect for my own practice is this idea that one can use poetry to heal pain and that that can be interesting as the objective going in. I found a little background on the composition of A Litany for Survival in an essay of Lord's titled, My Words Will Be There, first published in 1983. I went through a period when I felt like I was dying. It was during 1975. I wasn't writing any poetry, and I felt that if I couldn't write it, I would split. I was recording these things in my journal, but no poems came. I know now that this period was a transition in my life, and I wasn't dealing with it. Later the next year, I went back to my journal, and there were these incredible poems, and I could almost lift them out of the journal. Many of them are in The Black Unicorn. Harriet is one of them. A Litany for Survival is another. These poems were right out of the journal, but I didn't see them as poems prior to that. I write this stuff in my journals, and sometimes I can't even read my journals because there is so much pain, rage in them. I'll put them away in a drawer, and six months, a year or so later, I'll pick up the journal, and there will be poems. The journal entries somehow have to be assimilated into my living, and only then can I deal with what I have written down. That this classic poem that continues to turn us out with its bravery almost went unrecognized as poetry is incredible. There is an emotional availability and sense of inviting the reader into the struggle. Also, that art might have to catch up with our experience of everyday reality. The poet is so far out in front, but doesn't quite realize it until later. Audre Lorde and Diane de Prima would continue to work and read together until Lorde's death from liver cancer in 1992. Lorde would publish de Prima's work as poetry editor of the feminist magazine Crystallis in 1980, De Primo would publish an additional collection of Lord's poetry titled Between Ourselves in 1976 on her new imprint, Eidolon Editions. These poems would later be incorporated into Lord's classic collection, The Black Unicorn. The cover for Between Ourselves is a drawing, of Lord, a drawing by Lord of a symbol she had discovered in Ghana depicting two crocodiles whose trunks intersected. De Primo remembers Lord being very particular as to the color of this image. Audrey said she wanted an all-brown book. Here is the opening stanza of the title poem, Between Ourselves. Once when I walked into a room, my eyes would seek out the one or two black faces for contact or reassurance or a sign I was not alone. Now walking into rooms full of black faces that would destroy me for any difference. Where shall my eyes look? Once it was easy to know who were my people. Lord herself would start Kitchen Table Women of Color Press in 1980. This was a press collective operated by lesbians of color, including Barbara Smith, Cherry Moraga, and Hattie Gossett. Lord's essays, Apartheid USA, and I Am Your Sister, later included in A Burst of Light, were first published as kitchen table press pamphlets. I did want to speak more pointedly on the list, the chant, as repetition is a common formal element in much of the poetry I have read tonight. The fantasy of true of a truly binding tracery of light. The poet Joy Harjo writes beautifully of both its influence and its effect. Incantation and chant call something into being. They make a ceremonial field of meaning. Much of world poetry is incantation and chant. The poem that first made me truly want to become a poet was sung and performed by a healer in Southeast Asia. He appeared in a documentary I saw on television. As he sang and performed the poem, he became what he was singing slash speaking. And even as he sang and spoke, His words healed his client. Both revolutionary letters and a litany for survival are good examples of a poet becoming what she is singing slash speaking. We write the world we want to live in, calling it into being, and then make that dispersal available as a book, a recording, a form to step into the contours of. The list can be a deceptively simple entrance. It is often dependent on a short recurring breathless rhythm that feels easy to depart from and even easier to shoot right back into with time for minor excursions. It's simultaneously an invocation, a repetition pushed to the point of delirium, which reads as pure freedom or free union. This is a poem titled Complicity by Jane Cortez. Who likes to glitter? Who likes to smell blood? Who likes to be real imperialistic, real corrupt? Trade all the gold for a Mercedes Benz. Trade all the oil for a Peugeot. Trade all the uranium for a Rolls Royce. Trade all the peanuts for a villa over the Riviera. Trade all the cocoa for a ski lodge in Grenoble. Trade all the traditional art for a case of champagne. Trade all the cobalt for a Swiss bank account. Who will buy the outmoded mold? Who will buy the outdated rust? Who will make a billion dollar deal to store radioactive waste? Who likes to glitter? Who likes to smell blood? Who likes to be real imperialistic, real corrupt? If you think up a good title, a filter in advance, like complicity, you can coach your imagination word by word or action by action as in a play. Reading a list poem aloud helps to negotiate the bare bones of narrative. It clings to and flatters those rhythms that tumble out easily. The reader is allowed to climb back down from the apex and the path is kept clear. This refining through repetition reminds me of another quote I have been carrying around recently. In an interview, Joy Harjo has asked what she felt was possible in terms of reclamation through contemporary native poetry. Joy remarked that her intention is, quote, not to reverse history, but to draw out the strength. And this is the continuous transformative duty of the poet, to find the poetic means by which we can draw out further strength. De Prima has a great refrain throughout one of the longer later revolutionary letters, number 105, titled Fire Sale, in which she keeps repeating, We need to look not at what's wrong, but what is possible. What would your fantasy, your imagination say if reality were no obstacle? Or Audre Lorde, again, repeating what is at stake, teaching as a survival skill the task facing all of us. In a journal entry dated December 16, 1985, Lorde writes, Even our dead behind us, now that it has gone to the printer, seems prophetic. Like always, it feels like I plant what I will need to harvest without consciousness. That is why the work is so important. Its power doesn't lie in the me that lives in the words, so much as in the heart's blood pumping behind the eye that is reading, the muscle behind the desire that is sparked by the word. Hope as a living state that propels us, open-eyed and fearful, into all the battles of our lives. And some of those battles we do not win, but some of them we do.
0: That was Cedar Saigo giving his lecture, Reality is No Obstacle, a Poetics of Participation. Saigo's book of collected Bagley Wright lectures, Guard the Mysteries, is forthcoming from Wave Books in June 2021 and is available for pre-order at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, BagleyWrightLectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikhan Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarnot, and Douglas Kearney as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to the Poetry Foundation for originally partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.